You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. What up? My name is Jeff, and I wear several hats here at Stonegate, but uh, my favorite one is uh, student ministry. And uh, yeah, we had an incredible summer, both in student ministry and our children's group just got back this past week from their camp. And it's just neat to see the Lord stirring uh, some affections for Jesus in the hearts of our kids and our leaders. And I just want to take a brief moment to say thank you to the church. I want to thank you for two things. One, uh, I just want to thank you for your support financially. Many of you chose to forsake the hiring of a professional for much work around your house the last couple months to rent a kid. And uh, you rented a kid to help support them to go to camp. And just want to say thank you to you. And those of you that also help support many of our students through donations, through scholarships, to give them a chance to experience God and to meet with him in beautiful New Mexico, I just want to say thank you for that. Thanks for your sacrifice and your willingness to see uh, something that wasn't already there that you saw the Lord could do. And we just want to say that we're grateful for you in that. I know Lauren, who's doing a phenomenal job in our children's ministry, she and I both just want to say thanks. And secondly, I want to thank you for your prayers. Thank you for asking God to do what only he can do. Uh, We've seen uh, a neat work of the Lord and we couldn't be more jacked, couldn't be more juiced, couldn't be more excited and thrilled about all the Lord is doing right now to prepare them for a new school year, to be unashamed of who he is in their schools. And so thank you for praying for us in that. We, we don't want to uh, separate ourselves from the church. Uh, the youth ministry isn't in, the, in some corner eating their hair, doing something different than what the rest of the body is doing. Uh, sometimes we do eat hair, but, but I'll say this. Uh, we want to make disciples of Jesus. We want to see students meet Jesus and mature in Jesus, and your support in that goes a long way, and we're grateful. So uh, let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for a chance to communicate your word. I thank you that we can hear it and receive it and read it and proclaim it in freedom this morning. I just pray that we would soak up all that you have for us as a church, as your bride. We eagerly await what you wanna do in our hearts this morning. Pray that you would produce uh, fruit in us, knowing that uh, the work of producing means to prune. That's not always easy but I pray that we would endure for the sake of sanctification. And then as Jimmy prayed earlier, we would leave this place looking a little different than when we first walked in. So this morning's about you, Jesus. I pray in your name, amen. We've been in a series the last month on the book of Psalms and it has been so refreshing, hasn't it? Just to, just to delve into uh, just the, the depths and the emotions of of the artists and the authors behind these praises, the Psalms are brutally honest. I I love that about the Psalms. There's more humanity, there's more raw honesty and pure emotion in these 150 Psalms than any song that that some artist or musician has ever produced. Out of these 150, a third of them are what we call laments. That's 50 Psalms. A lament is simply a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. If you're feeling anything this morning, anything at all, 
you can rest assured that the Psalms are talking about it. And let that in and of itself be proof that God is not out of touch with the 21st century, that God is not out of touch with his people. It's Stonegate, God is not out of touch with us this morning. Let that be one of our greatest apologetics against the very idea of deism, which teaches that there is a God who is out there. He's just purposefully disconnected himself from creation. That's not the case. At the core of this book, the Psalms help all of us to identify our emotions. But, but here's what it does, even more so. In many ways, it challenges us to lean against the natural instincts, to lean against the flesh, to go against what emotion would tell us, to go against the grain of the culture. They challenge us in the midst of raw authenticity to lean away from ourselves and what we think we can do and instead lean into God and the goodness of who he is, the goodness of his promises. God essentially gives us psalms so that we can give them back to him. He's saying this, I wanna teach you how to praise me. That's what the Psalms are. I mean, the truest Hebrew definition we have of Psalms is actually praises. The Psalms have been a prayer book and a praise book for the church for centuries. And as we embrace them, know this, we join a vast company of people who have lifted up their own psalms to the Lord, who have treasured these psalms, kings and peasants, prophets and priests and apostles and martyrs, nuns and reformers and executives and housekeepers, the educated, the uneducated, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, for all of them, for all of us in this room and for a host of others, the Psalms have literally been a breath of life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired means to be breathed out. The very words of God, the breath of God. And if all the Bible is breathed out by God, that means this inspiration includes the Psalms. So think about that for a second. When you think about the words of God, know that the Psalms are just as inspired as the books of the gospel to John, the letter to the Romans or Revelation. So we'll be in Psalm chapter 40, first five verses together. 10 years, five months and three days ago, it was February 28, 2006. It was a day that many of you uh, have heard in detail, but just briefly, it was a day that's very special to me and that that was the day that the, the Lord chose to awaken my heart to my sin in many ways and show me a desperate need that I have for him and that that need would be filled and satisfied in him and nothing else. That night, I was in the dorm room at my university with the, the whole defense of our football team because we gathered every week for the sake of American Idol back when it was relevant and popular. And now, you know, it was cool then, guys, okay? And so we watched it every week and no one ever left. But sure enough, God began to pluck each guy out of that room that night. Till I was by myself wondering what happened. Who leaves in the middle of this incredible show? And the Lord, I knew what he was doing. He was, he was beckoning me. He was preparing my heart to speak to me. 
I love how C.S. Lewis describes his salvation. He says it this way, the hound of heaven ran me down. God had been relentlessly pursuing me for some time and his time had come. And as scared as I was, I knew that I had to meet with him. Didn't know what would go down. Reluctantly found a Bible under my bed and began to walk around campus and found myself going into a dimly lit chapel as I scooched over into the second to last row of that old creaky wooden pew with the pink cushion. And I sat down and for the first time since I can remember, I opened this. And I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what to read, but I knew that in some way that the way to hear from God would apparently be from his word. And I opened to the middle of the Bible and I, I hit Psalm 40. And it reads, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me or he turned to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the mud and the mire, out of the, the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Man, this passage was one of many the Lord used that night to rescue my heart. I got up what I thought had been 30 minutes to find. I had spent three hours with the king and I walked out of that room in tears knowing that I was a different person. And as, as much as I read this passage and I think about the idea of a pit and just the, the, the messianic prophecy we have in Jesus in these verses, and especially in verses six through nine, uh, we could read on and talk about in the most evangelistic way how Jesus is at the center of this passage. But essentially, in any psalm, you're gonna have sermons within a sermon. So to help hone our understanding in, in all these verses in a psalm, we, we pick a spot in the canopy of the forest that is this passage, and we go straight to the underbrush. And in verse one, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. David, who wrote this psalm, indicates that a period of waiting has passed. We see that this period has ended, considering he used the past participle, waited. I had waited for the Lord. It goes on to show us that this period of waiting is indeed over, since the Lord clearly intervened and lifted him out of the pit, out of the destruction so obviously his period has ended. And so seemingly David has tied a beautiful bow around this idea that in his temporary period of waiting, the Lord heard his prayers, answered them and delivered him. However, here's, here's the troubling thing for many of us because that's the direction I almost went this morning. God is our deliverer. He is our rock and our fortress and our refuge and our salvation. But I think for many of us in this room, we're still in a period of waiting and that's not always the case. That the Lord delivers us immediately, that the Lord delivers us in our own timing or that our period of waiting will ever end. Especially for those of you in this room right now who find yourself in a very difficult period of waiting. Some of you in this room have been wronged. Others of you have wronged others and both parties and or the other party is in a period of angst and waiting. 
for reconciliation to occur, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or with a coworker. And that period of waiting is still going on. We are aware that some of you in this room are waiting for a job. You know, it's, a, it's an awesome desire for the Lord to place, uh, an awesome thing for the Lord to place that desire in our hearts to work, both men and or women to want to provide, to put our hands to the plow, to work for what we have. But it's difficult when you find ourselves in a period of waiting and that hasn't happened. And others of you in this room are waiting for a spouse. What a beautiful desire the Lord has placed in your heart to glorify him through the beautiful picture of marriage. But, but you find yourself waiting and asking, why am I still in this period? Others are waiting to hear that you're pregnant, that you're expecting a child. And for those of you who are in that period, we mourn with you. We want to walk with you, but more than anything, we want to wait with you in that period. The minority in this room are rightfully awaiting a period when justice will prevail. Or anyone in this room who has a desire of some kind that has not yet been met, you're finding yourself waiting. And part of waiting is this constant, conscious hardship. David Mathis, author and pastor, describes it this way. We taste the bitter pill of patience and we feel it slither ever so slowly down our throat. It's not patience when we're unaware of the waiting. And so when we feel the burn of the pill, we need divine promises in store and a plan of attack. So this morning, our plan of attack will essentially be to answer one question. What does it look like to wait on the Lord. And there's really two things we're gonna look at to answer that question this morning. And the first thing is this, to remember. To remember what? To remember that you're not alone. That as you wait, tell yourself again and again, you've not been singled out. The idea of waiting is not some foreign concept to the people of God. You're not the first person to have to wait. Remind yourself, you are part of a vast company of people throughout centuries who have been called to wait on the Lord. Abraham waited many years for his promised son, Isaac. Israel waited 420 years from deliverance of slavery and captivity and oppression from Egypt. And another 40 years before they could even enter into the promised land. God's people waited in silence for 400 years until he sent the Messiah. The church now finds ourselves waiting for his return. Together across the world, the body of Christ literally groans as we eagerly expect and await his return for the final redemption of all things, for a new heaven and a new earth. So there'll be no more crying and no more pain so that every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. We await that moment. Sadly, however, it's much easier for us to groan as we wait in line at the DMV. As we sit in traffic on Satan's spawn of I-35, 
Or we sit there and don't get me started on the death that is 360. Maybe others of you at a restaurant waiting for your food to be delivered, which by the way, astounds me. No, seriously. We would forsake the idea of fast food knowing that we're going to a restaurant to be waited upon. And we can't sit for 10 minutes because our calamari hasn't hit the table yet. Knowing there's a kitchen of several people preparing meals for hundreds in this restaurant, where's my freaking calamari? It's, here's why it astounds me, because that's me. If, I mean, to prepare for this message, it forces me to hold the mirror up in my own heart and I have to say that that's, that's me. Waiting is more countercultural now than it's ever been. We've been conditioned to have it our way and have it right away. Don't get me wrong, I love my generation, okay? We're the millennials. If you were born between 1980 and the early 2000s, throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care, okay? That's us. And there's 80 million of us making us the single most populous generation on earth. You're welcome. I love our generation. But Time Magazine has labeled us the lazy, entitled narcissists. I think, I think I heard an amen from a baby boomer. We're the impatient generation. We're the Google generation. Need to have all the answers, and I need them right now. Waiting produces angst in us, and people make money off of our angst. No, seriously. Everyone knows the best part of an NFL game is the last two minutes. And I, I knew this as a kid. Jeff, time to go to bed. Mom, there's only two minutes left. Everyone knows the last two minutes of an NFL game are 30 minutes. I mastered this as a kid. Mom, there's literally two minutes left. Weft. Okay, honey, fine. Finish the game, go to bed. Yes, ma'am. 15 minutes in, father's voice. Hey, your mother said go to bed. What are you doing? Dad, there's one minute left. Look, there's 58 seconds. All right, fine. Finish it, go to bed. It's at least 15 more minutes. The NFL's mastered this idea. I I'm convinced it's, it's a stinking conspiracy. No, I I'm, I'm, I'm serious. The NFL knows this because the more time, the more viewers, the more money they get. I'm convinced it's a, it's a conspiracy. The rules in the game are literally bent around the idea of making us wait. Think about it. They change the entire rules of the game concerning time when there's two minutes left. They stop the game completely. They blow the whistle when there's two minutes left and they say, two minute warning. Like they're stopping the game to warn everyone, there's only two minutes left. And so we'll let this idea sink in so you're aware the game's almost over. Let's go to commercial for five minutes. And when you come back, they have ways of prolonging it. They change the rules. When the ball goes out of bounds, time stops. Commercial. You get a first down, time stops. First down, we have to stop the time. 
But penalty, time stops. They find a way to prolong the game. They'll drag that sucker out, forcing every single one of us to wait in angst to find out who wins. It's genius. But, but you know who beat them to the punch? Who does it even better? Game shows. Oh, it's genius. The best part of a game show is the end. It's where they give away the most money. But before you can even get to what they deem the bonus round, here's what it sounds like. And now, Jimmy will have a chance to win $500,000. The whole game is like five bucks, 10 bucks, 50. Last round, chance one in a million. $500,000, you're like glued to the TV. Oh my goodness. You know, it's producing angst. Here we go right after these messages, right? And they produce that idea of waiting in you before it gets to the end. Will of fortune, jeopardy, they all do this. Whatever the case, we can acknowledge waiting is difficult because it produces angst, but we're not alone in our waiting. God hasn't left us to go do something else that's more important. He's not merely some transcendent God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth all the while laughing at our earthly mistakes. Instead, God is very near to us in our waiting and he provides for us all that we need to be able to wait. So remember that you're not alone in your waiting and remember that waiting is active. Usually our view of waiting is something to do with the doctor's office. We see it as a meaningless space of time like a man stuck on some uncomfortable chair and the only option he has for 30 minutes is to scroll through Home and Garden magazine. That's how many of us view this, right? Paul, my father-in-law, if you're listening, who's a surgeon, I don't think you're a waste of time, but your waiting room is. Our waiting on God shouldn't be understand this way though. See, the sort of waiting to which we're called to by God is not inactivity. Paul Tripp describes it this way. The waiting to which we're called is positive purposeful and spiritual. Older translations of God's word would render the phrase, I waited patiently in the literal Hebrew, which would actually translate this way. In my waiting, I waited. In other words, everyone endures periods of waiting, but not everyone truly waits. Everyone endures periods of waiting, but not everyone truly waits. John Calvin, famous theologian, 16th century reformer, commented on the original translation, and he noted this. It literally means to have a vehement desire to be patient. Picture that for a moment. How would a vehement desire to be patient play out when you're at the DMV? I'm sure we all have vehement desires of some sort at that place, but to channel those desires in this way would most certainly be countercultural. Sir, here's your ticket. Your name should be called within two or three hours. A vehement desire. Thanks, Lord. Hey, man, we're waiting together. Like, what does that look like? That's so countercultural. Like, that goes against the grain of the flesh. But scripture is telling us there is a way to wait that honors the Lord. And it goes against the grain of the culture. Paul Tripp goes on to describe active waiting in this way. To be called to wait is to be called to the activity of remembering. Remembering who God is. To be called to wait is to be called to the activity of worship. 
worshiping God for his presence, his wisdom, his power, his love, and his grace, to the activity of serving, looking for ways to lovingly assist and encourage others who are also being called to wait, to the activity of praying, confessing the struggles of my heart and seeking the grace of the God who has called me to wait. We seriously need to rethink the idea of waiting and remind ourselves that waiting in and of itself is a call to action. So remember that you're not alone and remember that waiting is active and remember that to wait is to hope. There's a second meaning of the word waiting. This one carries with it the thought of expectation, to eagerly await, to hope, for something. See, the psalmist says in 62, verse 1 and 5, For God alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from Him. To wait upon God means to expect from God, it implies a dependence. Again, this definition goes against the grain of the culture. The natural man is self sufficient. He turns here and there and expects help from his own abilities, from his contacts, from his friendships, from his circumstances. But in the spiritual life, we're taught to not trust ourselves and to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why David says in verse four, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. David Mathis author and pastor in his book, Habits of Grace, refers to waiting as just that, a habit of grace. And he describes how to make waiting a habit in this way. When you feel the first resistance to wait, let it be a reminder to go Godward. Recalibrate the focus of your faith. Move the weight of the trust off yourself where it keeps gravitating back and consciously reorient on God. Faith feeds hope. And when we hope, as Romans 8 verse 25 says, for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we're called to remember that we're not alone. We're called to remember that to, be, to wait is to be active. And we're called to remember that to wait is to hope. So we're called to remember but we're also called to rejoice. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in your lack of control. You know you're waiting on the Lord when you realize everything you know you need to do will not fix the situation. You see, the beauty of waiting is that it forces us to hold up the mirror of powerlessness. It forces you to look at yourself and have to admit that you're powerless. That's what waiting does. That's what it produces in us. I've never felt more powerless in waiting than when I was 10 years old. So there comes a time in every boy's life where he has to graduate and become a man. And that coming of age moment for me was when I, I went from riding roller coasters to riding roller coasters that go upside down. So there's a big difference to a 10 year old. And I'll never forget, I was at Six Flags, it was the shockwave. Simple, right? You go up, you go down, you go flip twice, and you're done. 
But the idea of going upside down is just so fearful the first time. Theme parks, they've locked in to wooing you with this idea of waiting to produce fear in you. Prime example, every single roller coaster that goes up never shoots up. You know what it does? You hear the noise of death. for what seems to be 30 minutes as you look over Everest to your left and Kilimanjaro to your right, all the while being held down by a thin lap band. So comforting. I'll never forget the first time I wrote it. He told me this. My friend said, there's no way to experience this moment unless you ride it in the front seat. Please. I got in the front seat. I put that thing down. So I looked down and I realized that thin lap bar doesn't seem too comforting to me. I mean, there's like a couple inches off my thigh. And if you're like me, you want that band in the deep recesses of your femur. (laughs) So I do what any natural human would do. I push the band down, it opens. My reaction precisely. (laughs) I'm frozen in fear. My larynx went into my stomach. I can't speak. My friend is spitting at somebody over the edge of the car next to him. I start judo chopping his neck to get his attention. He looks over, he freezes. We scream in octaves that men should not scream in. Push it down again, he says. That seems like a logical point. Good call. I do. Opens again. (laughs) To say I felt powerless is a stinking understatement in that moment. (laughs) Till I get to the top. I don't know what to do except to do the only logical thing I can think of. Pray and take the band and put my leg over the bar and get my friend's arms and intertwine mine and just throw my neck down like this. (laughs) Obviously I survived and I'm alive today because I was not aware of what centripetal force was when I was a 10 year old. But I can tell you that waiting in that moment made me feel powerless. I think one of the most beautiful pictures we have in scripture of this is found with three guys with the modern names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These brothers were in Daniel chapter three and you see a picture of this very real tension that occurs of how you feel powerless in the midst of waiting. In the face of that tension that is that feeling They chose to go against their instincts. They chose to go against the grain of the culture, of the rest of the country. They chose to go against the grain of their flesh. And they chose to actively put their trust in God and wait on the Lord. They even said, if our waiting does not deliver us from the fire, we will continue to wait on him. They knew full well that waiting on the Lord meant losing all control to the point of death. We'll be thrown into a furnace and we'll be completely dependent on the Lord. 
This is what they're saying. Even the guys that bound them together, they were to go throw them into the furnace. It was so hot, they died just throwing them in the furnace. And up until the last moment, they've had every opportunity to get out of waiting if they would just rely on their own words and the truth that the culture told them would set them free. But in that moment, they chose to wait on the Lord. And of course, you know what happened. There was a fourth figure standing there in the fire. And it was Jesus who was waiting with them in the midst of it. Can our first response when we hear this story be to praise the Lord? To thank God that there exist such examples for us of men who are committed to waiting on him, to provide encouragement to us as the bride of Christ. The idea of waiting on the Lord should sharpen in all of us a deeper celebration of our lack of control. Culturally, the very idea of celebrating powerlessness doesn't make sense. But to God, it makes perfect sense. Waiting forces us to hold up that mirror of powerlessness, and that's a beautiful weapon in God's arsenal. Waiting is one of God's best tools to prune his people. And if you think about the idea of what it means to prune and to sharpen and to cultivate, it's not an easy process. But it's one of his best tools to get us where he wants us to be. So let's rejoice in our lack of control and let's rejoice in God's commitment to grace to celebrate the truth that God is committed to this work of grace. As you find yourself waiting, reflect on how deeply broken the world that surrounds you truly is and reflect in that world how pervasive your own struggle with sin is. Just sit on that for a moment. Now celebrate the fact that God is committed in countless ways large and small, in which his grace is at work to accomplish his purposes in all of us. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, when it comes to the ongoing work of grace, God is a dissatisfied redeemer. He won't forsake the work of his hands until all has been fully restored. He'll exercise his power in whatever way is necessary so that we can be finally and fully redeemed from this broken world and delivered from the sin that's held us fast. Celebrate the fact that God won't forsake the process of grace in our life. He won't neglect the working out of that in us. He simply loves us too much to exchange those temporary gratifications for eternal glory. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers in England, he put it this way, those who have been most mighty in prayer have sometimes had to wait for the answers of their supplications. The Lord may for the trial of thy faith and the commitment of his love to make thee wait. So rejoice in God's commitment to grace. And finally this morning, let's rejoice in the patience of God. See, the pain of waiting can, can point our hearts to the life-saving patience of God. I mean, the, the idea of the pit 
that he's lifted David out of. I'm confident the hardest place in that pit was waiting. I think the pit in and of itself was waiting. And so the pain of that process should point us to the, to the idea that God is a saving God, the life-saving patience of God. We owe everything to his kindness. We owe everything to his patience with us first and foremost. Romans 2 says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He was patient when the first man and woman sinned. 1 Peter 3 says, his patience waited in the days of Noah. He was patient with Abraham, patient with Israel. James 5 says, he showed his patience through the prophets. And if he is patient, as Romans 9 says, even with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, how much more has he shown his patience to us in making known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? 1 Timothy 1 says that Jesus himself is the perfect display of God's perfect patience towards sinners. 2 Peter 3 says he is patient towards you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3, we count the patience of the Lord as salvation. And we bank on his promise and all of our waiting, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, to sustain us to the end. Is it with the patience of God in mind, knowing that it was he who first waited on us, can we now rejoice in waiting for him as we await his glorious return to redeem that which is broken, to restore all things for himself, to forge a new heaven and a new earth, to wipe away every tear from our eyes where there's no more crying and no more pain. Can we eagerly await that moment? Can we now as a bride wait on him? Spurgeon says it this way. Do not beggars wait long at a fellow creature's door for some pitiful alms? And should not I be content now to linger at mercy's gate for such great boons as I'm craving? Because of Jesus we can now confidently cling to such bold promises as the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 130. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Or as the psalmist in Psalm 27, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or as the psalmist in chapter 37, wait for the Lord and keep his way. Or as Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Or Lamentations chapter three, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who earnestly seeks him. 
or Micah chapter seven. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Or as in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they will wait for the Lord. And they who do wait for him, he will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. We live in this period that is known as the already not yet knowing full well that what Christ accomplished on the cross was done once and for all, for all of eternity, that we have, we have now have access to a God who has redeemed us through the blood of the lamb. We live in that already having been accomplished, but we sit in the not yet because what has been redeemed is not fully realized until he returns to bring us with him. We haven't, already been there yet. Meaning, here's where we find ourselves. We're living in a permanent period of waiting together until Jesus returns. So what? Until we can wait well on the Lord, we can't really live the Christian life well. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.